when I started writing about food in the 70s, there was a tiny handful of us in the United States who really cared about food and thought American food could be really great. And there was no line between the people who were making it and the people who were writing about it. We weren't enemies. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Is there even an introduction needed here? Over her groundbreaking career, Ruth Reuschel has served as the food editor of the Los Angeles Times, the restaurant critic of the New York Times, and editor-in-chief of the legendary magazine Gourmet. She's written juicy memoirs, mentored a generation of writers and editors, and still writes with regularity, curiosity, and a love for real journalism in her wonderful substack. On this episode, Ruth joins me for an incredible conversation that covers everything from the legacy of Wolfgang Puck and Noma to visiting China in 1980 and her memories of the late, great Gourmet magazine. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ruth Reuschel. Ruth Reichel, welcome back to the Taste Podcast. Such a pleasure to be here. Really fun having you in the office. It's it's so nice to see you. Well, you too. And so nice to be back in this building. Right. You know? This is your longtime publisher, and, and we can talk about your projects coming up. You've got a uh, you know, novel next spring, and we'll get into small details. But honestly, first thing I want to know is where you've been eating. Okay, so as you may or may not know, I was gone. I was out on the West Coast for four months. So I just came back in April. Yeah. And immediately, I love this city so much. And I have been, you know, really eating my way around the city. So lots of places. Um, somebody bought dinner with me and I took them to La Bernada. I wanted to take them for a really swell yeah, meal because yeah. it was for a charity. And um, I took them to La Bernada, which was spectacular. Um, Absolutely A-game right now, Eric Repair. I, I think that room has come back to life. The captain service, you're not going to find anything really like in the East Coast. And and on top of that, I mean, it is the most consistent restaurant. Yeah. I don't think anybody's ever going to have a bad meal there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just no matter how often you go, they just hit the mark. Yeah. It's really wonderful. Yeah. But then I also went to, you know, Eric has o- opened this place right across the whatever that courtyard, that courtyard yeah, is, yeah, yeah. called Lamy Pierre. Yeah. And I stopped in there and had the most perfect jambon beurre sandwich. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just they've got, that is a sandwich that is all about proportion. Totally agree. And it's perfect. Yeah. You know, I thought I would have, oh, I'm just going to go taste it, right? I just want to see if it's good. I'll have a bite. And then I had a couple more bites, and then I wrapped it up and put it in my purse. And by, you know, I was in the subway, and I took it out. <laughs> by the time I got home, it was gone. Did the baguette have, like, the banquet? Did it have, like, the, the toast on it? or what it, was it? it was, yeah, it was just, it, it was the perfect combination of crunch yeah. and compression. Yeah, it was really good. That's awesome. Then I have to say, the most exciting new, I, I just, I don't know what made me go to Little Mad. Yeah. I loved that meal so much, I, and I thought it. I mean, I went with my son and his partner, and the three of us just kept saying, 
this is so great. And it's a prefix meal, but you have choices. Yeah, totally. So between the three of us, we basically had everything. Everything. And this is contemporary Korean, right? Yes. And 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 you've always been a fan of Korean. I think we've talked about it many times. What what drew you to Little Mag? Because that, that name is great. It doesn't really get on all the lists, to be honest. Right. I know. And uh, I thought it was it's a $95 prefix. Yeah. But first of all... No, they start with panchan, yeah. and the panchan are exciting. Yeah. You know, they're these little fish-shaped um, sort of toasts yep. and um, a, um, a yellowtail inside pear. Yeah. And, I mean, I, the food was just, I mean, every single dish we had was exciting. Yeah. Um, and we sort of floated out of there. It's so nice when, when the panchan is landing and it's interesting. It isn't the usual suspects, but it's delicious. Yes. Yes. Mm. And, and it's just like, anyway, I, I was very excited by that. And it was, it's a, it's a lovely room. It's it. quiet. You can have a conversation. Yep. Last night I did an event for, with, um, Padma Lakshmi mm. and Marcus Samuelson oh, nice. at Symphony Space for Mon Appetit. And afterwards... Um, I it was I had some friends. My my son came and Monica, his partner, and um, my former assistant Phoebe. And it was like nine thirty when we got out of there, and it's like, where are we going to eat? And Whoa, what, no plans. What, no. Oh, uh, yeah, I love and, it. And we're on the Upper West Side, and yeah. we went to Cafe Luxembourg. Oh, that I had not been to in a long time. And I want to tell you, we walk in there at ten o'clock at night. The place is jumping, and it was just it felt like. New York is back. And the food was good and interesting. I mean, I had, I think that there must be an Asian chef in the mm-hmm. kitchen because I had, I mean, I started with um, an onion soup gratiné mm-hmm. and there was some ginger in that broth. Not a lot, yeah. but just enough so you go, hmm, what is this? And then the mussels and cream sauce had a little touch of saffron in it. Yeah. And the food was delicious. The service was relaxed and pleasant. The yeah. room was really nice. Yeah. Felt great. Oh, what a great, what a great, great pick. And and I feel Luxembourg is someplace that was open during the pandemic and still like remained kind of a staple of the neighborhood for for that whole time. Yeah. And then let me see. Resdora. I love Resdora. Beautiful place. The food is wonderful. I was there with Bill Buford. We just had we had a great meal. Havenmar, Marcus's yeah. new place. Yeah. Um, that is the most welcoming room I've been in in That's a cool. long time. I mean, it's like you walk in and you just feel embraced. Um, and he's done a really interesting thing. The kitchen is it's all women of color running mm-hmm. that kitchen. And it has a really happy vibe. The food is delicious. Mm-hmm. I liked it a lot. I could go on and on. I, mean, I feel I like you, you could, and and I'd love you to, and then we could do a whole podcast of just you thinking about, because I, I follow you on Instagram and also your your newsletter, which we'll get into your sub stack, is, is just tremendous because it's prolific and you love writing. But I want to, before getting into the writing piece, you were on the West Coast, you were traveling. What was your winter and spring like? You know, we lived in L.A. for a long yeah. time, and so we go back and we stay with friends, and it's really, you know, it's, mm-hmm. we have a lot of friends there, and it's really usually fun. This year, the weather was so bad. Yeah, I know. You get killed there. It was horrible. Yeah, February was really rough. I mean, and, you know, we were staying in a house in Laurel Canyon. Yeah. It was snowing, <laughs> and we lost power, heat, electricity, yeah. internet, phone. Yeah. The neighbor's tree fell across our driveway. We couldn't get out, and oh. we couldn't call anymore. Feels like you're back in the Hudson Valley. <laughs> I mean, it was terrible. <laughs> um, you know, I mean— it, 
L.A. is, I mean, the food out there is so wonderful. And I have to say, you know, in the middle of winter to go to the Hollywood Farmer's Market and walk around and buy strawberries and, you know, tangerines and little lettuces, it if you like to cook, it's pretty wonderful. Yeah, it's an endless wealth of, of options there and, and all the, the – just the citrus alone yeah. is just beautiful. Now, when you were there in L.A., did you go – were you able to go to any restaurants? Yes, of course. Um, I mean, what a, all my friends are food people. Yeah, so exactly. So, of course, um, went to a ton of places. I mean, one of the most interesting places is Pija Palace. Yeah, I went. I mean, didn't you think it was just great? Absolutely. I mean, it honestly, with the, with the owner just having this energy that felt fresh, um, but also the flatbreads and the pizzas. What do you think yeah, about those? I, I thought literally everything we had there yeah. was delicious and interesting. I mean, these yeah. pastas that are sort of Indian versions of cacio pepe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, the other thing is it's a sports bar. Yeah. And so I thought, OK, we're going to go in and there were like seven of us at this table. And I thought it's going to be raucous loud. We're not going to be able to talk. It was completely relaxed. Yeah, totally. Um, we were able to have a conversation. It was like a, a West Coast sports bar in that no one cares about sports. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know? There are like 25 television cameras yeah, and yeah. nobody's watching no, them. No one's watching them. But it's great because, you know, for contemporary Indian or South Asian cooking, and I'm not sure where the owner's family's from or if he's representing anything, it felt like universal. The flavors there, it didn't feel like it was um, trying to do like a fusion. It would felt like fresh, right? Yeah. No, I mean, he is... His family is from India. He grew up in L.A. And actually, his father owns that motel that the the restaurant's in. And so it's really his idea of what he likes to eat. And it's very unpretentious. And it just felt so fresh and wonderful. I I think everyone should go there. You have a few more. I know you do. I do. I have a lot more. Let's go. Um, You know, Nancy Silverton has opened the Barish Mm -hmm. in um, the Hollywood Roosevelt and— the food, I mean, she is sort of reinventing all kinds of dishes. In the Roosevelt Hotel. In the Roosevelt oh my Hotel. Gosh. And the food is terrific. Wow, it, that place is a uh, blast from the past. Yes. Well, she's completely redone it. Yeah. Have, like live fire in the front. Nice. Um, and, you know, virtually everything we had there was fantastic. But mm-hmm. she, the thing that she really does is rethink salads. So she does that sort of classic, you know, blue cheese, iceberg lettuce um, with a creamy dressing and bacon. And it's like the best. You, you lose your mind over it. Yeah. When, you, when it's executed correctly, I mean, you're, you're talking about a wedge here, but it's like it, it, it's – can be really fucked up. Like you, you can mess it up. Yeah. Yeah. And this was it was fantastic. There's a new ramen place called Iki Ramen that um my husband ha- was in an accident and was we were stuck in the house for a long time. Mm-hmm. And they on top of the fact that their food is terrific, um, and they make this one of their broths. I mean, they do sashimi and sushi, really, yeah. really good versions of it. But they also make this dashi, this yuzu dashi broth. Yeah, the yuzu ramen, totally. And I started ordering just the the stock and making other dishes with it. Um, 
using it it's, to make sauces. Ruth, do you do you surprise yourself when you're excited about ramen and Japanese cuisine? I ask this only because you have written book a book's length on that cuisine in particular. I feel like I've read hundreds of thousands of words of yours <laughs> on that topic. I'm not surprised. I mean, no, you know, I never get tired yeah. of. I mean, when when you taste something really great, it's like a gift, mm-hmm. and you know, to to for somebody to give you a bowl of ramen that tastes new, I mean, how how could you not be thrilled and excited by that? 100%. Like, it's the, one of those foods that, you know, we had this ramen boom in, like, the t- 2010s. And we, tonkatsu, like, we got a little sick of it. It was, like, heavy ramen. But then you do shio or you do yuzu, and it's like, wow, it's light. It's different. Yes. And, um, and this place, I have to say, on top of everything else, they do the most beautiful takeout that I've ever seen. Ooh. I mean, we were ordering in from them mm-hmm. and everything would come beautifully arranged. You know, this chirashi sushi would come and you'd look down at it and think, how is it possible that they sent this to my house? Yeah. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Um, you got to have more. I, oh, I do. A few more and then we'll get some. Lulu, which Alice Waters has opened with David at the Hammer Mag- at the Hammer. At, Hammer Mag- at the Hammer Museum, yeah. And, I mean, that food is, I mean, it's just, I think David is having so much fun going to the market every day. I would see him at the market all yeah, the time. Yeah. And he just, he really is sort of like cooking the food that he wants to eat. Mm-hmm. And you feel it. I mean, you go there and the food is fresh and it's mm-hmm. very simple. Um that's great. Connie and Ted's, yeah. which um, my husband would go there every night if he could. Yeah. Um, I mean, that Connie and Ted's to me feels like it's industry still, right? Industry, it, like Hollywood. Yeah, but it's also, you know, Michael Chimarusti, who, I mean, I think Providence is probably the best high-end restaurant. I mean, well, Providence and Spago mm-hmm. are, you know, the two really – great high-end restaurants in L.A., mm-hmm. but Connie intends is where he makes money. Yeah. You know, it's it, he's like a—he imports great fish from the East Coast. I mean, it's the only place I know in almost any city that's not New England that has great that fried has- clams— and and a great lobster roll, yeah. and he makes a great bouillabaisse. And that's so hard to do when you're not in, like— Inland or on the in the territory, right? Yeah, of, of the origin, right? Yeah, it's so hard to do bouillabaisse, do Louisiana Cajun. It's impossible. Right. Well, I mean, the thing about the bouillabaisse is he only does it one day a week. Yes. And the reason he only does it one day a week is because y- you need a million fish bones to make that in quantity. And mm-hmm. so, like you know, they're saving up the fish bones every day, and then they make this fish stock that is so delicious. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Let's talk about Spago a little bit. I wanted to get I reread from your from your newsletter you'd linked to an article that you you profiled Wolfgang Puck in 1988. You went to Cleveland with him. I did. That is I I want to like set the scene a little bit. You're in Cleveland and he's got like four events and he's meeting with a business partner and he turns them down on the spot. How did you get this access? I feel like this is a really unique piece in 1988. Well, you, that's because you haven't read the piece I did in 1983 about the opening of Chinois. Okay. I spent a year doing—I was still living in—I guess I must have written in 82 because I was still living in Berkeley at the time. And I spent a year with Wolf and Barbara as they opened Chinois, and I got to know them 
really, really yeah. well. And um, also it was a different time. You know, I mean, Andrew Friedman said to me once, you know, I'm so jealous of you because when you started writing about food, you could just walk into a kitchen and say, talk to me. And he said, you know, today we have to go through layers and layers of public relations yeah. people. There were no public relations right. people in yeah. food then. So, you know, I would just call up anyone and say, can I come talk to you? It was like peer to peer. I mean, there wasn't like a hierarchy as much. I mean, as a critic, you obviously became a different. But at that point, you weren't the critic, right? You, I was. I, you it, were. I was both the critic huh. and the food editor of the L.A. Times, which is like you couldn't do today. No. Well, you could. I, I, it would I, be wrong. Probably. <laughs> it would be. I think budget-wise it might. But, yeah, you need that separation for sure. But in those days, I mean, I think it's very hard for younger people to understand what it was like. You know, when I started writing about food in the 70s, there was a tiny handful of us in the United States who really cared about food yeah. and thought American food could be really great. And there was no line between the people who were making it and the people who were writing about it. I mean, we weren't enemies. I mean, it was just, can America please wake up and care about yeah. food? You were all advocates. You were all screaming you know, from the mountaintop and trying to get people to, to, to pay more for food. Yes. And, and, and to care about it. Care I mean, about it. I mean, nobody in America cared about food when I was growing up. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, you know, here we when we all sort of started being able to afford to go to Europe because air travel became cheap and we would go to France and Italy mm. and, you know, you name it, Mexico, and realize, oh my God, this food is so great and we could do this in America. There's no reason why we couldn't be growing great strawberries, but we weren't. And so we were all sort of jumping up and down and saying, you know, it's not about technique. It's about the products. Mm -hmm. We need we need to start growing good it's products. It's shocking when you talk about U.S. foodways in that way. And and I, I always cite David Camp's United States of Arugula. It's one of the books covering that early phase in food culture in America. Yeah. And, you know, we so we were all passionate and in it together. Cool. So, you know, when I called for that piece, I, I just called Wolf and said, you know, I want to do a piece about what the life of a celebrity chef is like and just pick your busiest week yeah. and I'll I'll come with you for a week. And we were in a different city every day for a week. And it was classic you, the way you always, you frame your thesis right at the top at a lot of your pieces. And I think that's really great. Like that, that like first person, like set the scene. It just like makes it really easy as a reader to figure out what you're doing. Well, thank you. Yeah. But the thing about Wolf is... Um, he really is a genius. I mean, he's he's so interesting. And I've often thought about, I mean, he asked me if I would, a few years ago, if I would write his biography. And I really thought about it because I thought um, you can really frame everything that's happened in American food in the last 50 years through Wolf. I mean, here's this guy who... You know, the first guy to really make pizza sexy, yeah. open kitchen. He's really, you know, he, he's one of the few chefs of who, you know, he, he was trained in France, right? Yeah. I mean— um, From Austria, right? From Austria, yeah. but trained in France and um, really a great boss for women. I mean, you know, Nancy Silverton took her baby to—you know, when mm -hmm. she said, I'm pregnant, he said, well, you'll just bring the baby with you. Okay. Um, and— um, he opened um, 
the first gastropub. You know, he started, that was the one that didn't work. Yeah. But the fusion restaurant, I mean, Chinois was like really revolutionary mm-hmm. at that time. The idea that a French chef would do, you know, Chinese, French fusion. Yeah. There were like, there were separate like, like area code. I mean, there were separate parts of the map. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, frozen food and, and the, the, yeah. you know, the way he started right. co- cooking frozen food. Do you know how he started doing frozen food? The pizza story, I know, but the tell me pizza about, story about Johnny Carson. Johnny, Car- tell the story. I, I, I know this. It's such a great story, tell but me. you know, so he said Johnny Carson used to come in and buy like twelve pizzas. Yeah, and one day he said to him, "What do you do with those pizzas?" And Johnny said, "Well, I put them in the freezer, and then you know, if I'm hungry, I put it in the oven." And Wolf said, "I was so angry <laughs> that he was doing that with my beautiful food." And then I thought, "Well, let me see what that's like," and he did it. And the pizzas were great, and he said, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start a frozen pizza business." Unbelievable! That that story is great, and you know, Wolfgang has always been somebody who who was able to blend commerce and art, or commerce and culinary art together, and do it with like the same kind of ethics and not like selling out. Like no one really said Wolf sold out. I don't think I've ever heard that about the guy. No, and and he's a wonderful manager. I mean, yeah. people work for him forever. I mean, the guy who was the manager at Spago when it first opened, what is it, 35 years yeah. ago, is still working with him. That's he, pretty remarkable. Is it still a good restaurant? It is. It's a it's a wonderful restaurant. I know Sherry Yard has left the restaurant. Yes. And, um, and that was amazing when she was there. I love it, that. Yeah. It, it. But, you know, he has a real good, he has an eye for talent. Yeah. He lets people do what they're going to do. And I once said to him, Wolf, why do you open so many restaurants? And he said, well, look, when you you, you bring people up <laughs> and they want to be promoted. And if you only have one restaurant, at a certain point, you can't promote people and they leave you. So I open restaurants for them for to them. run. And I feel like Andrew Carmelini has followed that model. I think the John and Vinny's guys have followed that model. And it's definitely a model of for, to grow empire. You know, you have to have your your lieutenants and your foot soldiers. Right. So to right. speak. But treat them well, of course. It, treat them well. <laughs> and also, you know, let them have their head. I mean, don't micromanage them. Of course. Yeah. I want to ask you about the New York State James Beard finalists, the restaurants, because I feel like you've been to all these places or at least know about them. The the five finalists, and they'll be naming these finalists um, in early June or the winner in Chicago at the, at, the, at the awards. So it's Dirt Candy, Auto Mix, Sofre, Cafe Mutton, and The Musket Room. And my question for you, Ruth, is someone who's observed New York City dining for a while and, and really knows what's happening, what do these five finalists tell you about what's happening right now in New York? Well— First place, with the exception of Atomics, it's all women chefs. Glad you put, pointed that out. And even Atomics, I mean, they are really a partnership. I mean, JP is in the kitchen, but Elia is, you know, no. very much his partner. They both sit side by side when they do podcasts, and I, yeah, they're yeah. both a team. Um, you know, secondly, um, you're you're lo- first. I mean, just. If you look at the range of kinds of foods that they're serving, I mean, you've got a vegetarian restaurant, a very high-end Korean restaurant, Mm -hmm. a Persian restaurant, um, 
I have to say I haven't been to the musket room. It, it, it doesn't speak well for me that I haven't. But no, I, it, it's totally fine. And I, I didn't expect you to be to every place. They, they have a relatively new chef and the pastry chef is, is remarkable. I've, I've been to four of all five of these places. And I must say uh, it's such a range. I agree with you fully. And and, and the Cafe Mutton, which is you know near where I live. Yeah. Um, these are all people who are cooking what they want to cook, which is that's a real different mindset than the way it used to be, which is we're going to cook what people want from us. Mm-hmm. And this is, um, I mean, they're all fantastic restaurants and very different. Um, I, I have to say I have been an Atomics fan from mm-hmm. like week one. Yeah. You had the early cards, the I, first edition of the cards. I, the first edition of the cards. Yeah. And, it's, you know, I, I so admire what they do. Yeah. But, you know, Dirk Handy, I, I mean, I so admire what she's doing, yeah. too. I mean, the idea that, you know, she's ethical, she really cares about her staff. And I um, mean, also just, you know, I think it's like $80 or $75, tip included, for a, for a multi-course tasting, all vegetarian and vegan, paying a living wage for her staff. Really excellent service. Yes. Just really impressive place. And, and delicious food. And delicious. she is, um, she she doesn't puff herself up at no. all, but she is so articulate when you get her talking. Um, no, it, it, it's, it's very much a picture of where American food is today and how different cool. it is than it was 10 years ago. I wanted to talk to you about Noma closing. And that's air quotes. Noma is going to be around until 2024, but it really it announced closing. It needed to, to turn the page. And you made this observation in your newsletter, which I'll link to. Uh, again, I read it every time it hits my inbox. It's such a vital read. And I just love the work you put in. It's just impressive. But you compare this time right now that we're in in fine dining to the early 90s of L.A. when um, the, the fun of the 80s had really fizzled out because of economic burdens and because of changing in taste. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, um, the 70s and, you know, I was in L.A. Yeah. Um, in, I, I, well, the, I was in the Bay Area in the 70s and in L.A. in the 80s. And I went to L.A. because I really thought it was the most exciting place to eat in the country or maybe the world at that time because people in L.A. were discovering food. And Jonathan Waxman once said to me, I can feed people anything so long as it's not what they ate the night before. Love that line. So great. And, you know, you had this really restless appetites. And then the recession of, you know, I mean— the early 90s in L.A., you had the the riots, you, you had mudslides, the um, aerospace industry started cl- closing down. Mm-hmm. Sony was having problems. Japan was having problems. So what you have is um, this contraction where people aren't spending money in the way that they were, and they become more conservative. And as a critic, I mean, one of the reasons I came to New York was as a critic, every restaurant that was opening in L.A. was like a copycat pasta place. You know, you can only say so much about the 43rd place that's serving, you know, pasta. Um, And I just felt like all the fun had gone out of it. Mm. I think this is a slightly different time, but I think what happened during COVID was we all understood how much we love restaurants and that we don't just love restaurants for the food. 
And I think that's a really important takeaway from COVID. You could go to restaurants and you could get the food. And we all realized we wanted to be in that space. We wanted to be in a space with strangers. We wanted the kind of anticipation mm-hmm. that you get from a restaurant. You know, where, you know, who am I going to meet? You know? Yeah, there, I mean, as a social event, it was also, you know, cultural currency on social media, you know, saying you're at this restaurant is actually means more than just being there. Yes. It, it lives. Now, I'll just ask you, though, it seems I do hear some similarities from the 90s in L.A. to now, and I hear the chatter on Twitter about the menus having the sameness, you know, having like the oyster course, having a pasta course, and and really doing the caviar bumps was a thing. Like there was definitely this like luxury, but maybe even pseudo luxury happening in a lot of new American menus. Now, of course, you've just like very articulated the, the, the exciting moments in L.A. and New York. So I'm not, this is a generalization, but I do think here that we're, our menus are, are kind of the same in a lot of places. Well, I think one of the things that's happening is uh, during COVID, a lot of chefs started saying, do I want to do fine dining anymore? Is this the kind of, I mean, it's interesting because I'm saying that all of the chefs who are nominated in New York, are they're people who are doing the food that they want to yep. do. And most of those people, when they go out to eat, they're not going out for fancy food. And so they're saying, you know, do I want to be cooking the food that isn't really what I want to be eating myself? And I have to say, last time I went to eat at Noma, which was about a year and a half ago, I got, and when I was talking to Renee, I got the distinct feeling that if you could, if he could be cooking what he wanted to cook, it would be kind of Alice Waters, very simple food, that I could feel his Mm -hmm. fatigue with the tweezer food that he's cooking. Absolutely. And and I could see it coming that he was just going to say, why am I doing this? You know? He really looked in the mirror and and realized that doing it as an event, doing the pop-ups in, in, you know, places outside of Copenhagen, it was more sustainable for his own. So my question is, so fine dining, what does that mean to you now? Um, Well, I think there will always be a place for fine dining. Um, But what I have seen over the course of my career is when I started writing about restaurants, the people who went out to restaurants were rich, old, white people. And suddenly the people who mattered were hip, young people who had money to go out to eat um, but didn't want. Mm. That level, they, they they didn't really want to have to put formerly on a known tie. as yuppies, formerly known as yuppies, exactly, or tech. <laughs> yeah, now those, those are the new yuppies, tech, tech execs. Yeah, um, Patagonia vest guys. <laughs> uh, but you know they don't want that. They they really don't. And so, you know, why if the chefs don't want it, and the people who are making it don't really want it. That leaves you with a much smaller audience, mm-hmm. and it means that restaurants are going to have to change. Yeah. And so there is room. I mean, so it's interesting to me that there are very few really high-end restaurants in Los Angeles. Right. You know, I mean, really, when you're trying to think of, like, where am I going to go for an anniversary, there aren't a lot of them. Yeah. And they're shrinking in New York, too. You know, I mean, there used to be, you know, when you if you wanted pomp and circumstance, there were 15 or 20 restaurants. Yeah. Now it's like Teresi is the hottest table in New York. And that's just like a downtown at the Puck Building. And it's certainly not a place to celebrate anything except for being at Teresi. Right. <laughs> uh, 
Right. Oh, boy, they, they are. He is such a good cook. So, yeah. Um, exciting just to see what he's up yeah, to. Yeah, Rich was on the podcast about a month ago. Yeah, absolutely. Just absolute talent. And just like him and Mario together, just a force for of uh, like packaging restaurants. For the for the masses, yeah. I mean, I have to say, I mean, the other the other one who I would put up there in that same ilk is Ignacio Matos, who's yeah, totally. like such a another force and creative and um, food that you didn't imagine yourself. Yeah, but um, you know, I, I think there will always be a place for the Jean Georges. I mean, another amazing talent. Um, a Danielle, a uh, you know, a Le Bernardin. but you know, if you've got four or five restaurants like that, it's probably all even a city like New yeah. York needs. Yeah, it's very interesting. We could talk about this all day. I want to transition to uh, something that came up in your newsletter in the past couple of months was a trip you took to China in 1980. You went there to review or write about a rest uh, of a hotel, but you came across much more. I'd like to get a sense of what China was like in 1980. Oh, it, it I, I feel so privileged to have done that. Um, so I don't know how this happened. I was sent by Apartment Life. It was before it became Metropolitan Home. Yeah, Dorothy Kalins. Uh, yes. Um, and I was sent to write about this hotel that was supposed to um, that was apparently built in Toysan. And there was a group of about 10 journalists who went on this trip. And, I mean, this is 1980. Yeah. Not many go to, you know, are going to China. No, not many Americans. No, yeah. very few. And Toysan is where so many of the people who came from China to build the railroads in the 1880s came from Toysan. Um, we get there. First of all, it takes forever to get there. Yeah, do you remember from your Hong route? Kong. We went from Hong Kong, but it was like every time we would come to a river, we would have to wait for a ferry, um, like, which was basically just a raft to come and take us across. Yeah. So it, it just took forever to go like 100 miles. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I recall it as like two or three days. Wow. And then we get to Toysan, and there have been no non-Chinese people in this village for 45 years. Wow. And this hotel that we're supposed to be writing about has not been built yet. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and they basically put us up in a hotel for overseas Chinese people. And they give us each a bike and say, go explore. But we also have a minder. Yeah. And, I mean, this is still, you know, a cultural revolution. I mean, it, it's, it's still a very— It's an authoritarian government. Very Absolutely. authoritarian government. And— the Toysan, people were still living basically whole families in one room. So all the life of the village happened on the streets. So people are cooking in the streets. So, you know, we would walk past and you know, ride our bikes past. And, I mean, we were really seeing a China that has not existed now for a long time. Yeah. But a, a very rural, poor China. Um, and... Our, our poor, responsible person, um, he was, I mean, I, I was kind of a hippie in those yeah. days. So he came to me one day and said, you don't wear a bra. That is not good. <laughs> <laughs> what do you respond to? What do you say? To and that? I was like, um, I don't have a bra. Yeah, I didn't pack it. It didn't make the trip over those uh, all those rivers. And then one day he just said to me, we were on the bus going to see the hospital. 
which was a trip. Um, And he said, um, what do you use for birth control? Just just, just out of the you. blue. Wow. Just like, no non sequitur. Okay. Um, and then um, people would like, you know, I have very frizzy hair and it was very hot and humid. And nobody there had ever seen curly hair before. I mean, they're Chinese, right? Yeah. So I get off the bus and hundreds of hands are reaching out just to touch my hair because it's such an anomaly for wow. them. But the thing that was exciting was, I mean, we really ate. They gave us the best that they had, yeah. but it was, I'm, you know, I've written about this, but one day we were eating something and I had no idea. It was a steamed creature mm. and the whole creature was there. and Whole body, yeah. And I was like, what is this? And they said, we don't know what it's called, but, you know, here, let me show you its armor. And they, he took me into the kitchen, but it was like an armadillo. I mean, yeah. It was a pangolin, which they don't uh, have armadillos in China, but they do have pangolins. But so we were eating everything, you know, everything yeah. that they had. And, you know, wonderful dim sum for breakfast. Uh, and most of the journalists I was with were, you know, they just wanted eggs and bacon. Really? So back then, even, you know, you're on one of these boondoggles with a bunch of journalists and there's like the food people and then, you know, there's always like divide. Yeah. I mean, there weren't, I think I might've been the only food person oh, really? on this. I mean, they were mostly sort of academic journal. I mean, it was, it was. Interesting. Um, I, I feel so fortunate yeah. to have been there. And we, me and another, another couple of the journalists started being known as the gang of four because we got into real trouble because we would go to the tea room the the major um the major business at that time i mean toysan is now huge mm-hmm. and they have i think the largest um fish farm in the world it's indoors but at that time it's um very small and the major business was the tofu skin factory oh cool and there were all, so there were these conveyor belts where they would sort of paint the, the liquid tofu, the soy milk on it, and then it would go through the oven, like and, yuba, basically, and they would like ch- you know twist yuba. it off, and it would yeah. be yuba at the end. And um, they also had you could there were a few tables there, and you could get tea in the middle of this factory. And so people would come up to us and ask us to read English onto their tape recorders because they wanted to learn English. That's amazing. And then somebody there invited us home for tea. And we all got into so much trouble. You know, the police came. Oh, yeah. Yes, we we were not supposed to go to But can you imagine them? Can you imagine them, you know, having an American guest read, you know, English? Yes. The first time ever, probably for many of them? Yes. Wow. Uh, it's it, amazing. It was extraordinary. Let's talk about gourmet a bit. When you think about gourmet in these quiet moments, what flashes into your head right away? I was so lucky. That's what passes through my head. I mean, I loved that job so much, and I knew how fortunate I was even then. I mean, I was working with really talented people. I had... Um, I don't think it'll ever happen again. But, you know, a boss who said, basically, make me the best magazine you possibly can. Think out of the box. I don't care what it costs. Um, You know, hire the best writers. Try and figure out how to do the most exciting um, art that you can for the magazine. Um, And, you know, I 
I was working with wonderful editors and, um, you know, the great thing about Condé Nast in those days, I'm sure it's nothing like that anymore, but um, so I pretty much ran it like each one was a separate studio, like a movie studio. And they didn't care that I didn't do it hierarchically and that we didn't have a flow chart of who reported to who and that, you know, it was sort of anybody could do anything. And, you know, I mean, I basically went in and said, you know, I'm not I'm not going to tell you what stories. You go out and find your stories. And um, it, it felt like every day was exciting and every issue I would, you know, we would have these meetings and we'd say, okay, let's do a Paris issue. And I just remember walking out of those meetings and thinking, I wonder what it's going to be like when it's done. Oh, I know the feeling. I feel like I, I mean, in a much smaller scale, but whenever I'd be in editorial meetings at Taste or other publications, you get that, there's so much promise and hope with all the like approved stories of an issue or, or, or a special something. So much great hope. And and I was really, you know, for the the bulk of my time there, I had... A publisher I loved and who kept saying, you know, I would say, you know, you think this is too scary? And he'd go, no, you know, yeah. we have to be different. And I can explain, you know, when I, you know, took him, you know, David Foster Wallace article and said, I don't know, you know, <laughs> people are going to, people aren't going to love this piece. He said, you know, no, this is incredible. We should yeah. be doing this. Um, that doesn't happen. Uh, it, it, it was just a stroke of extraordinary luck. That's great that you hear. I hear gratitude, and I I hear somebody who made the most because you're a naturally inquisitive person. Just hearing you speak in this in this episode, it's you just love you love this stuff. You like you're interested in it all the time. Yeah, I am. And then to be surrounded by <laughs> yeah. other people who are, yeah. and to really say, "The sky's the limits." Don't you know? Don't put a leash on your imagination. Mm -hmm. Let's think. You know, and also to be doing it at a time. I mean, I took it over in 1999. It was an amazing time when I thought Americans are ready to yeah. think about food in a new way. And, you weren't wrong. Um, but it was before—I mean, right now everybody's thinking that way. Right. But at the time— um, there weren't very many people who were thinking, oh, let's get beyond, you know, how to spend your money. Oh, and let's write a lot of recipes. Yeah, um, yeah. And and then I had, the, you know, it's great test kitchens. Yeah, and, you got to, like, test. And you get your, your passionate home cook as much of a, of a restaurant critic and a traveler. So it's like a blending of all those interests. Do new, do old issues pop up in your in your feed, in your, in your own collection? Do you look at old issues of Gourmet? I do. I do. And people have been sending me. Yeah. Um, so I've now got, like, most of the 40s. And cool. um, my collection oddly is growing. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, we've written about your menu collection. Priya Krishna came up to your house in the Hudson Valley and, and wrote a great piece for us. Uh, and But also your menu collection is always on display in your newsletter. And I, I just love that so much. Well, I, I mean, I just feel like, you know, menus tell us so much. And apparently there's, there's, a, there's a show right now at the Grolier Club of menus. No way. Yeah. Somebody oh, sent me a, a link to it and I want to go there. Has there been any thought about publishing these menus in some kind of collection, some kind of printed? I, I don't think so. I mean, but that's one of the great joys of doing the Substack yeah. is, you know, I, I it makes me go back and look at them and think about them. And 
Um, you know, to me, it was just like yesterday. So, you know, when I'm looking at something from yeah. 2000, I mean, it doesn't seem like a long time ago to me, but I look at it and go, oh, that was a That was a bit of a moment. Um, we'll have a few more questions. Um, what excites you right now about food writing? Is there any writer that pops up in your your feed or any 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 publication? Well, I, I really love Vittles. Yeah. Which I is, is absolutely is you know totally surprising and wonderful. Um, Whetstone is wonderful. I mean, I actually think it's quite an amazing time for anybody who. I mean, a friend is about to start teaching um, food writing at a university, and he said, "I don't know what to tell these kids because there are no jobs in journalism." And I said. No, no, you're wrong. There has never been more work for food writers. And, you know, you don't have to write for a publication necessarily. I mean, there are policy places yeah. that you can write. There there are so many outlets now. And, okay, yeah, there aren't that many magazines um, or, you know, d- dedicated to right. food. But every magazine is now covering food. Absolutely agree. I think that right now it's it's an entrepreneurial moment for food writing, and I think you can definitely start your own thing. Um, maybe not the staff positions are, are are fewer and far between, but I think I agree with like what what they're doing at Vittles and what um you know you mentioned Whetstone and, and even um all the traditional publications. I think are really raising the bar. Yeah, I mean Bitter Southerner does amazing yeah. stuff on food, yeah. and you know the New Yorker is doing great stuff exactly. on food, and the Atlantic does. I mean it. It's a very fertile time because when I first started writing, you know, the food section was basically called the women's section. I know. <laughs> and Crazy to think about those times. Yeah, yeah, but it wasn't that long ago. No. And it was basically, you know, very polite little pieces. Well, things aren't so polite anymore. No, it's not. And and, and that's the best thing possible. That's but best, best ultimate end, like end goal for food writing is to not be polite. Right. And, exactly. And get real is cool with the, the real world. <laughs> no, exactly. Cookbooks? Uh, are, you, are you reading cookbooks? Are you, I mean, I'm sure you're sent cookbooks often. Are there any cookbooks that come to mind that you're really interested in? I'll tell you um, the cookbooks that have come across my desk recently that I really like. And this one, I cannot believe that this book hasn't gotten more pop. The Chef's Garden in Huron, Ohio, they they have written the most wonderful book about vegetables, how to grow them, how to use them, Um, vegetables you've never heard of. It's called The Chef's Garden. It's called The Chef's Garden Cookbook. And it is, it's fantastic. I mean, it's the kind of thing I think everybody should have this book in their collection. I mean, the other recent book I've really – it's not that recent, but Mr. Jews in Chinatown, yeah. um, Brandon Jews' book is – I don't think there's ever been anything quite like it. And, um, you know, they're real chefy Chinese recipes, but the writing is great yeah. and interesting. And, you know, that 14-day duck of his is worth doing. You've done it. I haven't done it. Yeah, but it's but worth like, looking at the recipe. and I am going to do it yeah? at some point. Yes, definitely. A winter project, maybe. Um, yeah. There's a new North African cookbook that's just come out that is, you know, it's it's been a long time since, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's sort of Paula Wolfert and then silence. Mm-hmm. And this book, I think this book is terrific. Um, I was sent. It's not out yet, but Viola Butoni. I don't know and, that one. Oh, it's it's a really interesting. You know, an Italian cookbook that has things that you've never seen before. That's n- impossible. <laughs> <I feel like. laughs> 
I think it's coming out. I, I think it's coming out in the fall. Yeah. But I, I really like that. And then, of course, you know, I, um, they're the classics. I mean, Marcella yeah. is still a book I cook from. And I have to say, the gourmet, the first gourmet cookbook, the yellow one, mm-hmm. um, is probably the book I use most often. It's it's you put a lot of effort you put a lot of work into that book we all did you did all we your all, team did yeah yeah we all did and the recipes are good and we went through mm-hmm. sixty years of gourmet yeah. recipes and you know and it's the thing that they're tested and tested and tested so they work I mean that's the thing about Marcella those those recipes yeah. really work yeah and I mean I guess there are some people I mean there's some cooks who I really like. And I like their food, but their recipes never work for me. Definitely not. <laughs> There's definitely like they're they're in a restaurant for a reason, and they're not working at a food magazine, right? Yeah. Um, so um, I keep waiting for the next really exciting book to come out. What what do you what do you love that's come out? Recently? Super biased. I mean, I thought Anna Hazel's Tin Fish Cookbook, my old colleague, was one of my favorite of the season. I think for a small format book, she really like nails this moment of tin fish uh-huh. with, with both recipes that are creative and inventive, but also really like dialing in what to buy and doing it in a way that she thinks like an editor because she is one. <laughs> and I just love books from editors. Um, Hedy McKinnon's new book, oh. beautiful. It's a large format. Um, and it tells her story. It also has called Tender Greens and it has a real flow to it that I get excited about. Like it's not repetitive. Um, it has story and recipes. So those are a couple. We publish a lot of books here too. So right. I'm, I'm always, I'm always biased. I mean, I still think Eric Kim's book is one of my favorite the last couple of years. Right. Korean American. Yeah. It's a wonderful book. Terrific book. Yeah. Let's talk about the documentary you worked on Food and Country. It debuted at South by Southwest earlier this year. So what's the big idea happening here in this And we will probably see it soon, I hope. I hope so. I mean, right now I'm on the um, I'm on the uh, festival circuit. So yeah. I was in Toronto last week. I'm going to Seattle this week. That's We're opening, fun. We're opening the Berkshire Film Festival oh, at the end of the month, um, Nantucket. I mean, we, we're really traveling around with it. Um, what happened, how this, this came about was – um, I was in LA in March of what twenty is it twenty twenty when COVID started, yeah. and one day my husband and I just looked at each other and said, "If we don't get out of here, we may be stuck here forever. They're going to close the airports." So on March twelfth, we just literally went to the airport and came home, and I said, "Okay, before we go into quarantine, I'm going to do one giant shopping. I'm going to go to the supermarket, and you know we live up." in the Hudson Valley. And I went to the supermarket and the shelves were empty. I mean, there was nothing. It it was, I'd never seen it before. And I came home and said to Michael, you know, I think this may be the moment I've been waiting for my whole life. This is the moment where Americans suddenly understand that food matters. And we've been taking it for granted forever. There's always been enough. Um, Nobody's ever seen empty shelves before. And with restaurants closing, um, I don't know how it's going to be at the end, but are the farmers going to go out of business? I mean, what about the fishermen? I mean, most of the fish in this country isn't sold to consumers. It's sold to restaurants. Are the fishermen going to survive? And I just thought, you know, I said to him, I have no idea 
what will I mean? Maybe this will be the triumph of farming, and everybody will go be cooking with their kids and realize cook, you know, cooking is important. Or maybe the other thing will happen, and it'll be the triumph of industrial food. And Ugh. um, but I soylent for everybody <laughs> exactly. I said, but I feel like I should keep a record of it, and so I just started. I got a Zoom mm-hmm. account as we all did, and I started calling. Um, farmers, fishermen, policy people, chefs. And um, I, I thought, I don't, I don't quite know where this is going, but I, I really want a record. And then um, my friend Lori Ochoa, who was married to Jonathan Gold, said, you know, Laura Gabbert, who did the movie City of Gold about Jonathan, um, she's working on a movie about restaurants and L.A. restaurants and how they're going to get through this. And I called Laura and said, you know, I, I think you need to think bigger. Um, I, I think this is not an L.A. story. This is, this is a, a national story. And so she said, you know, do you want to hook up together? And you want to do this together? And um, I was very fortunate because both she and our producer put their own money into it to start shooting immediately. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, God, we should have started a month ago. And she said, that's what... It's always the case with yeah. documentaries. You're always too late. Of course, at that time, we had no idea that this was going to be years. Yeah, years, yeah. Um, you know, and, we, like, and changing forever in and, many ways. Yes. And so, I mean, the idea was that we would identify six great stories and make the film about the six great stories. But I, I really did not make it easy for her because mm. I literally Zoomed all day every day for Two years. Wow. That's, all, that's, that's hundreds of hours. Hundreds of hours and policy people and one person would lead me to another and I went down all these different rabbit holes. And But there were a bunch of people who I talked to on a regular basis. And in the end, we're pretty much letting the, the farmers, the ranchers, the fishermen tell their own stories. And um, it was amazing because... When we premiered at Sundance, I had not met most of these people because mm. every time we were supposed to go get on a plane and go shoot in person, a new variant new, new va- would roll so in. So yeah. Laura found crews, local crews, who went and mm-hmm. shot people. But um, so I, you know, fell in love with people, and you know, these people I'd never met, but you come become very close with them if you talk to them every couple of weeks for two years. Yeah. And people cried on camera, and um, but so I talked to eleven chefs and a bunch of farmers, and in the end, a few chefs in it. But we really all felt that the farmer's story doesn't get told. No. And I came out of this with such respect for farmers, and such a sense that if we don't help them. We won't have. We will not grow food in this country. I mean, we make farming so difficult. Yeah. Is it is the we the the government? Is the, the we the consumer? The we is the government. Yeah, exactly. Um, you it's know, a story about the government. The farm bill, I'm sure, enters the the equation. Yeah, I mean, the, for me, the big takeaway is: for years, I have been saying to people, the great thing about food is if you don't like it, you can change it right? You vote with your dollars. Mm. And what I learned when I really got down into the economics of farming is the only way we change it is 
we elect people yeah. who will change it yeah. because it is government policy that makes life so difficult for farmers. And it's why we do not grow food in this country. We grow commodities. Yeah, we, re- we grow fuel. Yeah. Uh, we will write about it in our newsletter when it is just follow you on social media and you'll let people know. I, I will definitely let okay. people know. Yes. Ruth, we asked our guests on Taste Podcast if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to execute this book. I've always wanted to ask you this. What would that book be? Well, you know, I think the thing that really identifies the best food people is that they're obsessives. So they're a little bit totally. crazy. A little bit nutty. And it's a certain I, type. I would like to go around the world finding the most obsessive people and telling their stories. Beautiful. So it's like a people study. And, I and yeah, I mean, and, you know, all the best, I mean, it's cool. all the best interviews I've ever done are these people yeah. who are completely obsessed with what they do and a little bit crazy, but we're better off for their craziness. Love that you end it with a way it's an optimistic reading. Make this happen, please. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Ruth Reuschel. It's been a real honor and pleasure to talk to you and, and definitely subscribe to your newsletter. You, you you just write like every day. It's like it's always there. I'm really having fun with the newsletter. <laughs> I love it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Matt, this is Taste. How does it feel? <laughs> How does it feel to have a new name and same great taste? New name, same great taste. How long were you waiting to say that? I've been like sitting on that for a couple months now, maybe maybe longer. It was good. I liked it. I appreciate you endorsing. We, we've been talking about changing the name. The goal was to take podcast out of the name. Yeah, which is, I think, a good goal in 2023. <laughs> right. It's a little dated. It's like back in the day when we were like, we have blogs Remember, like, like the blog of Bon Appetit was like the like you worked at the blog of Blink. It felt like calling it the Taste Podcast felt like it was already we know what the format is. And we thought there was a cooler name, a better name. We wanted to obviously have taste. So this is taste. I think it's a good name because this is taste. And it's one of the things that taste does. The word taste has really been kind of fun to play with. I, I certainly didn't come up with it. It was I inherited it when I started the site. Uh, in the publication in 2016. And um, I didn't know what to think because it was pretty broad. But ultimately, we've really, like, we've lived with it for a while. And I think it means more than just, like, literally what your tongue is saying to you, right? The taste of food. Right. I mean, the other obvious one is your personal taste. Exactly. Right. Um, And I think that when we've been talking about other names for the podcast, there was this idea of in good taste, things like that. But I think... um, it's limiting to have a certain descriptor, right? We talk about all kinds of things on the podcast that are related to things that you're literally tasting and also maybe the personal tastes that our guests have yep. as well. Absolutely. And we're going to start to craft those conversations um, towards getting into like our guests' taste and like their wheelhouse and maybe items and ideas that they uh, that might surprise us as, as, as hosts and as you as listeners. Yeah, I want to ask you what what your personal taste is. Do you think there's a certain thing that like really is the Matt Rodbard personal taste? I mean, it's I love that because we've been asking people that question, like what is your personal taste and what is something you're a tastemaker for? And like we've had a variety of answers. Some people have been like running out of the studio screaming like I can't do that because it makes you sound like kind of a douche. Like I'm a tastemaker. Yeah. And also I think people can get self-reflective in a weird way. That's like, what is the one thing that identifies me, right? We're all more than the things that we like to eat and drink. Yeah. But I still want to ask you. No, it's and what I would say is, I mean, with with food at the center of 
my career, your career in some ways, I'm speaking for myself though, like restaurant recommendations or, or cookbook recommendations or, or like, th- like that has always been like the wheelhouse of go-to. But like, I, I feel like I, I have taste in other areas. I mean, for me, I mean, I watch a shitload of television. <laughs> when I like a show, I feel like others can, can, can roll with me. Is, is, I mean, I sound like such a douche saying that out loud. Like oh. TV is not really a great thing to talk about on a podcast, I feel. I mean, there's a whole genre of podcasts that's just talking about TV. Yeah, truly. And like uh, The Watch, that's a great show. Those guys are experts. But there's like, it's hard to talk about television on, on like this kind of format. But mm-hmm. I don't know. What about you? What is your one um, category? I know there's many. I think my music taste is something that I really love and I love to share with people. Uh, my friend Tanya that I do cake zine with, when she started doing production in the restaurant all the time, I made her like a six-hour playlist to listen to in the morning because I knew that she needed help getting up. Like that's my love language. But the other thing that I was thinking of is I made a just a on-the-fly cocktail for people, which was Health Aid uh, Mint Limeade Kombucha and Mezcal <laughs> with tahine, which I do think is a With tahine? Yeah, oh, that's nice. like my personal taste A as rim well. of tahine? Yeah, um, and it was like a kombucha mezcal <laughs> drink. I feel like if you know me, that's a very like Eliza <laughs> taste thing. I love it, yeah, because like we definitely have our foods that we lean into that we love like expressing ourselves with. And I love that you're like wellness mezcal tahine. Yeah, the the nightlife wellness combination is, especially when I was editing the publication Healthy as Bon Appetit back in the day, yeah. that was kind of like the inside joke with my friends was like the nightlife wellness overlap. That's really funny. But I, I do think uh, playlist, you're great. Like you've shared some of your music with me and I've, I've really enjoyed listening to it. It is a real cool cool thing of you, you know. Yeah, you too. I feel like whenever you send me an NTS set, I get really excited. And if you subscribe to the Taste newsletter, sometimes we sneak radio shows or songs we really like in there too. Absolutely. So bottom line is this is Taste. It's the new name. Same. We have a a lot of interviews that we have planned. I cannot wait for the next hundred episodes. Thank you all out there. Our numbers, we've been growing so fast. Like it's amazing to look at the charts and look at our every month, the number. It looks like a great chart. It looks like a, like, like stocks. Oh my God, the stocks are up. It looks like that. Yeah, I don't even know what that looks like, so I think I we'll know. take it. I mean, I'm 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 kind of getting, but it, it's just <laughs> it means that you out there are connecting with us and listening time after time, and we really, really appreciate that. Yeah, and we're excited to be doing more. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.